Welcome, everyone, to episode 173 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're ringing in the new year that is 2022 with a review of the last film Netflix released in the calendar year, 2021. That is their directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal, The Lost Daughter. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, Happy New Year. How is 2022 treating you so far? Uh, I can't really complain thus far. Uh, it's been, what, one day and a few hours now. Um, Tennessee hasn't lost any games in 2022. Uh, they did lose a couple of large ones to end 2020. So that was not, or 2021, but that was not very fun. But hey, that was last year. That's way behind us now. Um, I did get to go see Red Rocket for the second time last night, which um, was a great first movie to kick off 2022. So I'm hoping that all of the movies are that good uh, for the rest of the year, but somehow I don't think they will be. <laughs> we can only be so lucky. I feel like I sat around yeah. for half of the day yesterday wondering what should be my first movie because in 2020, like last year, my first movie, I was like, you know, I watched Little Women to end 2020 and I was like, you know, it's 1215. The new year is here. I'm just going to watch 1917. <laughs> like watch 1917 to start the year. I did not do that this year. Um, I went I promptly went to bed, I think, after after midnight um, and then yeah. woke up and spent half the day wondering what my first movie was going to be. And it was The Lost Daughter. So I can't complain too much either, because that is a great way to start the year. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what my first I think my first one of last year actually was, was Possessor. Yeah, Possessor that we watched yeah. together. Yeah. Um, but obviously, I guess you'd gotten 1917 in before that. But yeah, that was that was a great one. You know, weirdly, that was my number two movie of 2020. Uh, I think Red Rocket may end up being my number two movie of 2021, but uh, we won't know for sure until next week. Yes, very exciting. We will be doing our top 10 of 2021 episode next week, which is typically our Golden Globes episode. In the past, we have done it as sort of our podcast anniversary because that is how our podcast started but uh, this year it's going to be the top 10 we're going to celebrate four full years of having done this thing which is a pretty wild thing to think about that's crazy yeah that we were reflecting on the other day today i guess we are kicking off the fifth year um technically of the podcast it is 2022 now <clears throat> and we'll be talking about netflix's final awards film of 2021 maggie gyllenhaal's adaptation of the elena ferrante novel the lost daughter Starring Olivia Coleman in the lead role of Lita, The Lost Daughter is more a slice-of-life film, focusing on the vacation that Coleman's middle-aged Lita takes while on her summer holiday from being a professor at Harvard University. She's vacationing in Greece when she meets young mother Nina, played by Dakota Johnson, and her subsequent encounters with Nina and her difficulties with her young daughter remind Lita of her own troubled motherhood, told in flashbacks with Jesse Buckley, playing the younger version of Lita. As the days pass during her time in Greece and she befriends Nina, Lita is reminded more and more of her past, leading her seemingly to a breaking point as she relives fateful decisions she had made two decades prior. Scott, we've actually both had the luxury of seeing this movie multiple times now. First, at the respective festivals we went to this past fall, and of course, most recently, at home on Netflix. Is The Lost Daughter the narrative feat and acting tour de force that critics, or at least some critics, have been giving it credit for, or is it overhyped and a bit too ponderous? to be as gripping as you would have liked. First of all, I just want to say, if you're asking me 
there are a few films that I'm going to say are too ponderous uh, because you know how how I That's feel true. about movies that just kind of meander that along. Ponder. Yeah, those are some of my favorite <laughs> movies. Yeah. But um, yeah, Scott. So I saw this, like you said, for the first time on Halloween, actually, I believe was my first viewing of it, um, October 31st. Um, and my first reaction coming out of it was, I really don't know how this movie is going to play to like the Netflix audience. Right. I mean, this is obviously again, one of Netflix's awards plays um, for, for this year. Um, But I just, I don't know what the reaction is going to like. I I almost felt like at that time, like this movie is going to get swept under the rug. This movie is going to kind of get lost in the mix amongst award season when it comes around. And it already kind of feels like that's happening a couple of two or three days after it was, has been released on Netflix. I, you know, I, I don't see anyone really talking about this. I, mean, I don't know how many people even know that this movie is out now, right? Um, because it just doesn't feel like anyone's been making a big deal about it really on social media, the fact that it was out. In the same way that people were making a big deal for the last two weeks about Don't Look Up, the Adam McKay film being out, even though everybody hates that movie. Um so that is really, you know, disappointing to see because uh, this movie is excellent. Um, it is one of the most confident directorial debuts that I've seen in in quite a while. Um, and, you know, the reasons that I was saying that I think um, I, I don't see it playing necessarily great to the Netflix audience. I think the main one is just it's a difficult, complex uh film in the way that you know several 2021 movies have been you know we keep talking about this recurring theme of um morally complex protagonists or even unlikable protagonists in movies um i just talked about red rocket which is a movie that obviously has one but unlike a movie like red rocket this movie it doesn't have like the conventionally enjoyable necessarily uh feel to watching it like like, you know red rocket is a very comedic um high-spirited film um and the lost daughter is a kind of like abrasive and um intense drama that you know doesn't necessarily leave you feeling super fulfilled by the end of the movie um or uplifted or anything like that um and so i just don't know how many people are going to have the patience even to even make it through the movie on netflix of course i guess that doesn't matter for netflix's numbers but um in terms of the attention that it may get in award season just looking ahead i i do wonder if this is going to be one of those movies that kind of gets forgotten about maybe outside the lead performance of olivia coleman um which is definitely you know uh, the kind of tour de force performance that we have come to expect from her now um but again i want to go back to maggie gyllenhaal because i think um she deserves a lot of credit for this movie because like i said even though the movie is you know all of these things that i'm talking about that would make it sound like it's a chore to sit through um i personally didn't feel that it was i mean i've sat through it twice now and i um i mean i think it's very riveting it's mesmerizing there's a real tension that runs through the entire movie um that i think is you know again effective at keeping you hooked because like i said there's this tension where you don't exactly know what's going to happen i mean this isn't really a spoiler but early on olivia coleman's character uh, discovers a doll that um has been left behind by dakota johnson's child um and is holding on to that doll for a large portion of the movie um while everyone else is looking for it 
um, and she's she's holding on to it. Obviously, she knows where it is. She has it in her home, but everyone else is kind of looking for it. It's creating a lot of tension in Dakota Johnson's family, and in turn, creating a lot of tension in the movie because you don't know like what's going to happen. I mean, obviously, it seems like at some point she's going to get found out. You know, what is the reaction going to be? Because also, this family that Dakota Johnson is part of is you know kind of shady characters. Um, there's a lot of different sort of suspenseful scenes in a way um, involving her husband in particular, um, who, you know, seems like he could just snap at any minute. Um, so again, there's there's almost like a thriller undercurrent running through, you know, that at least plot line of the movie. But I also think that amidst all of, you know, amidst the fact that Lita, which is Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley's character, is you know, I, I would say in the end, I don't think she's a very good person. Um, the movie finds empathy for her. Like, um, and there is a feeling at the end of the movie, again, even though you feel like she's not a very good person, there is a feeling like, well, does some of that come from the pressures that the world has put upon her, right? That the expectations that of that the world has of what a mother is supposed to be because that is ultimately what this movie is about it's about motherhood it's about um olivia coleman's past experience with being a mother to her young daughters again the flashbacks where she's paid by played by jesse buckley and the present which is her interacting with dakota johnson who obviously she sees a lot of herself in and similar experience but also is maybe projecting some of that experience onto dakota johnson which is again where some of the um, ambiguity and complexity in the movie take, uh, takes hold. Um, so, but, but again, even though, even though you don't necessarily like her, you know, in the same way that a, a lot of these really good movies with the morally complex protagonists that we've seen this year do, you have some sort of empathy for her for a long part, you know, portion of this movie, maybe in the end is finally where it's like, okay, never mind. I like, I'm, I'm done with this lady, but um, still, I think that the way that the fact that Maggie Gyllenhaal is able to um, parse that out of her characters for for such a long stretch of the movie is a credit to her. It's a credit to Elena Ferrante, who wrote the novel, and it's definitely a credit to both of her lead performers here of um, Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley and Dakota Johnson. I mean, Dakota Johnson's character is also not super likable. Um, so, you know, she's doing a lot, I think, with that role as well. But, um, yeah, I think these are two powerhouse performances, again, from two people that you would expect to get powerhouse performances. I just said in my letterbox that I feel like Olivia Coleman is becoming a Meryl Streep type figure where you just expect her to get the Oscar nomination every time now. And maybe even unlike some of Meryl Streep's late roles, you're like, yeah, I get it. Like, I understand she probably deserves the Oscar nomination when you're watching Olivia Coleman because she is just a, a powerhouse performer. And if you're going to get somebody to play the younger Olivia Coleman, right, who can hold their own and had, can be as, you know, transcendent a performer as Olivia Coleman is, there's probably only about five or six people you could get. And Jesse Buckley is one of them, right? Like, she um, is almost the opposite in a way because she is giving the same level of performance that Olivia Coleman has been giving for several years now, but is not getting the recognition from awards bodies that Olivia Coleman has got. But anyway, I think they're two incredible performers that, again, I think they are crucial to um, making you feel anything but 
disdain for this character of Lita that they're playing. And I think it is necessary to, you know, make it through the movie to appreciate the movie for you to have some level of empathy towards them. So I think that's a huge credit to the performer and like I performers. And like I said, a huge credit to Maggie Gyllenhaal. So overall, it's a really strong movie. Um, even though, you know, again, I described it in ways that may make it sound like it's hard to watch. I, I think, again, it's it's the maybe chief achievement of the movie that despite being all of these things, it's a very involving, very mesmerizing, very um, just interesting thematic film that explores topics we don't necessarily always see explored on the big screen. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, and I hope that people will finally shut up about Don't Look Up, a movie that they all hated. Again, we're still talking about it, even though everyone hated it. And we'll watch a movie that is actually worth discussion and is actually worth um, the attention that, you know, Don't Look Up is getting. Yeah. I, I wish everyone had hated Don't Look Up. I think a fair number of people actually do like Don't, don't But it feels up like and... the people who are still talking about it are the people who are, like, upset about yeah. it. But yeah, maybe that's th- them, and, them and David Sirota on Twitter are just well, having yeah, a nice little back true, and forth. But... It's not exactly an unbiased source. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. Uh, Yeah, I think that way you describe these, they just feel like such such interesting characters, right? Like talking about the performances of Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley as Lita and then Dakota Johnson as Nina. There's just something that feels when you're watching these characters, like they're aloof in some way, right? Like you know that, like what you're seeing is, them being bad actors it feels like right not not in terms of like acting but like bad people right like you know they're very abrasive i mean every character in this movie feels extremely abrasive not really sure whether except for ed harris not even true there's this whole scene when he's in her apartment where he's talking about how mean he is that Um, is true yeah, yeah that is true but what you actually see of his character lyle is something a bit sweeter um than i think you get from any other character in in the film um, but any other main character in the film, I, I guess you could say Will is he's doing yeah. maybe he's doing some shady stuff, maybe, but like he seems like a nice guy. I don't know. Um, I can't, I can't vote against my boy Connell, let's be honest. And I do find that the Coleman performance is just sensational. Like, I, I don't know, I was rewatching this movie and I was like, wow, like she's just in, impeccable. I mean, the way she. I think the scene that sticks out to me, I mean, there's so many, but the one that sticks out to me in particular is the one in, where she's in the movie theater and the kids come just like crashing in. And then the, the capital A acting, which I know we're not always a fan of, um, but the capital A acting in that scene from her is just, I mean, it's remarkable. It, it just feels like you, whatever you have to access, you know, in inside you to get to a place where you can display that, you know, outwardly feels, feels like crazy to me. I don't know how you do that, um, but she does it. And, it's it's kind of just it's it is like a microphone to her whole performance probably because it's so explosive in that in that scene, but it does feel like that is the level she's giving and everything that she does every single time she goes out and does it and it's pretty it's pretty incredible to me. Um, you know, you were commenting on Twitter last night about like she's only been around for she's only been relevant for like five six years. I mean, she got famous playing the main character in Broadchurch, which I think was a BBC or ITV show or whatever that started in 2013 that ran until 2017. But it wasn't until I think she was in, I mean, I I got, I sort of noticed her for the first time, I guess, when she was in The Night Manager. But I guess it was like something like The Favorite where she really became like very relevant. 
and it's yeah it's cool to see too in a way though i mean like look i would have loved to have another 15 years of olivia coleman performances don't get me wrong but like for most actresses it's the opposite right like you know yeah. they they start off and then once they get to this point in their career i mean jennifer lawrence stop putting them in roles right like they age out of i mean it's wrong but that's how the industry works and it's so interesting to see that she is sort of bucking the trend and you know, getting these high, continuing to get these high profile roles, not just on film, but obviously on TV as well. I mean, she's, you know, leading the crown. Um, so what, she's done now, but yeah, she was. Yeah. But yeah, yeah they've yeah. moved on now, but, um, yeah. but yeah. And, but she's 47 years old, right? Like she, she didn't start getting significant roles really until she was in her forties. Um, so maybe that's a positive trend for the, um, the industry. Maybe people will point to her and say, Hey, yeah, it can be done um but again we're not talking about like movies that are you know lighting up the box office or anything necessarily just more again high quality roles not necessarily high attention roles unfortunately. i mean the favorite was very i mean that did that is a movie that did very well at the box office you know granted it's a yorgos lanthimos movie so maybe everything's like tilted in that respect but that probably that movie probably made like 100 million and i mean like 20 but also like 2018 even when that movie yeah, came out, feels absolutely. like a whole nother world from today. Like yeah. a movie like The Favorite will probably, who knows when a movie like The Favorite is ever going to do 100 million again. Like that's just, yeah. it feels like a completely different era when it was like, three years ago. <laughs> COVID has just changed so much. Well, I hate to, it is four years ago actually, because it is 2022 now. But um, yeah, well, I'm, not, just, I'm, just, not I'm just, totally four years, but yeah. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I'm just giving you a hard time. Uh, anyway, back to The Lost Daughter. Yeah, I just found, it's the film where I I was so excited to see it at the New York Film Festival. It was one of the first movies actually that I saw. I think I saw Benedetta as my first film. And then the second film I saw was The Lost Daughter. I actually saw Red Rocket like the same night right after The Lost Daughter. But that's a separate thing. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to be there with the cast and Maggie Gyllenhaal and listening to them talk about the movie afterwards. And it just sort of like totally lived up to my expectations at the film festival. I was totally absorbed by it. And I wondered coming home, you know, seeing it on Netflix now as, as to rewatch it for for the podcast, how would this play? Would it play the same? Would it be as engaging and absorbing as it was on, you know, a huge theater like the New York Film Festival? And I and I just found that it completely was. Like even from the minute it starts, right? Like she's stumbling, you know, on the on the beach or whatever, and she falls into the water, and then the central mo like musical motif hits. And you have like the title card. And I'm, I'm just like, I was immediately in. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's because I knew it was coming and because I'd seen the movie before. But just something about that. It's not a movie that on, on the page would necessarily be a thriller. And I think this is to a point that you were saying. But the way that it frames the beginning of the film and certainly how it builds tension in other key moments, it, it, is, it does have a, a bit of a thriller vibe to it. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And I think that speaks to more of the themes of the film and less like the actual quote unquote, like action that's taking place. I think so much of the story is about Lita being re-traumatized by her past decisions, essentially by, you know, I almost voyeuristic has like a weird connotation to it, I guess, but while like essentially seeing her like, so much of herself on this vacation um, in Nina. And again, I, I do think a, at least a decent chunk of that is projecting her experiences onto it i don't i don't think that it is like a true um one mirror one image of herself comparison, yeah. yeah exactly i think i think a lot of it is like 
oh, this thing reminds me of this thing. And now I project that memory that I just had that I just that we just showed on screen onto I mean, what's happening I mean, back again. I just find that extremely trans. I mean, I said this in my letterbox review, but I just found that sort of narrative structure that that sort of storytelling transcendent. And like it's that just feels like so hard to conceptualize and, and do in, in an effective way. And it feels like every single time you flash back to you know something, you know, whatever, two decades prior when you have Jesse Buckley's version of Lita, it just feels like it's perfectly timed. It lasts the right amount of time. And it just is, is just like expertly contextualized within the rest of the film. I mean, I think that's probably even more so than the performances, which I think are stunning. A lot of the time, I just found it really breathtaking how well the film was constructed. Yeah, I was just going to say, going back to the point about, you know, her projecting, like, that is really what the whole doll thing is kind of about, right? Like, she is withholding this doll almost as if to try and create the sort of tension in, but in Dakota Johnson's family um, that is going to bring her, bring Nina to a place similar to where Lita found herself, you know, 20, 30 years ago with her children. Um, and so that, you know, that I think that's exactly what's going on is um, she's kind of an unreliable, you know, figure through whom to see the story to begin with. But also she is trying to manipulate the situation in her own way by and withholding the doll, I think is a, a big part of that, because, yeah, I, I feel like that could be a, a central question of the movie. It's like, why does she hold on to this doll? Like, what's the, what's going on here? Like, why, why is she doing this exactly? And for me, at least that's how I interpreted it as she she sees the effect that like this thing has on the family and she's trying to almost stir the pot by continuing to you know raise the tension the the, the more time the more time that passes with nina not having mm -hmm. the doll it seems like she becomes more disillusioned because her child is becoming more high strung and um again it feels like Lita has orchestrated it exactly how she's want. She she wanted to so that Nina, again, at least in her perception, is very similar, is in a very similar place to where she was with her kids. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely true. And I and I also think that that is supported just by how standoffish she is, confrontational almost she is with Callie, who is like sort of like the matriarch of this, of this sort of like, I don't know, group of large group of people. Um, that Nina, the family in which Nina is a part of, and that's I think her character played by Dagmara Domenchich, who's a mm -hmm. co-star on Succession. Succession right? I'd, yeah. I'd seen her in before. She's not a main character, but yeah, she has like a peripheral role on Succession. But you know, she plays this pregnant um, mother. I think she's the sister-in-law of Nina. It's not super clear to me, but I think that's who. I think Nina's husband is is her brother. Um, but she, yeah, she's has these confrontation points with Neen with sorry with Lita and the relationship between Lita and Callie is one that I think is is part of or at least the basis for what all that tension sort of builds out of later on between her and, and the family and I think it's a lot of how Olivia Coleman's Lita sort of like projects anxiety like tension and anxiety on the situation like I the, the second time I was watching this I couldn't help but feel like so many of like the the glares and like the long stares that you see from the family towards Lita is just projections of her guilt and thinking that people are watching her. And I'm not even entirely convinced that, that there is that much actual tension, you know, in, in reality, because 
there doesn't really seem to be a reason besides, of course, her confrontations with the kids. But it seems like no one really likes the kids anyway. So uh, it, it seems like a bit of a gray area, weird type thing for me. And I and I can't help but wonder if there is more of this, to your point, like the unreliable narrator of it all. If there's if there's more and more being injected into that unreliable narrator as the film goes on and as you see her become more anxious about everything and she has more conflict about whether she should continue to hold on to this doll and whatnot and continue to mislead Nina and keep secrets, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like she might actually be projecting some of that guilt and some of that, you know, tension into the world that doesn't necessarily even exist. It's just, it's just built up her. It is just her built up anxiety about the whole situation. And, you know, again, having to, to relive these, these painful memories from decades prior as well. I think, I think, it makes me really question what's actually real and what's not real. And I think that um, it definitely serves well for a lot of tension. And I think another thing too, is like, it almost seems like she is wanting some validate. The reason she is like projecting this is because she's like wanting some validation, like that. She is not almost like that. She is not a bad person, right? That her experience is shared by other mothers and that she shouldn't yeah. feel bad about doing what she did because people are experiencing this every day. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what the very, the very ending to some extent is about, but I think that's, that to me strikes, that strikes me as being maybe her motivation for like wanting to project this onto, to Dakota Johnson, right. To be able to say, Oh, well, look, here's somebody else who's, um, who's experiencing the same thing that I did. Like, this is, I'm not a bad person, right. For doing what I did, but you know, it's more ambiguous than that. Yeah. And I think it's such a, I mean, one of the reasons that when I originally saw it, I found it so breathtaking. It's not necessarily because of its structure. I mean, the performances are, I mean, I think they're immediately noticeable, but the kind of story that it was telling, I think this is actually what a lot of talk was about when it first came out. I was like, this is such a different type of story. It's rather than this empowering tale of motherhood, which I think is a lot of the times the types of stories you're getting when you're when you're looking or analyzing motherhood on the screen, it's a it's a paralyzing story about the horrors of motherhood. And, you know, early on in the film, I think Lita's talking to Callie and she's like, it's a crushing responsibility. Um, and all these times she's dropping these like really casually delivered lines about just like how horrible it is to be a mother, you know, whether it's to Callie or to Nina, whoever it might be. And I just found it, I think originally on, on a first viewing, I was just so taken aback. I think by this raw and uh, raw tale, uh, uh, emotional tale about about a different kind of experience with motherhood that is certainly doesn't feel mainstream in terms of what gets talked about or what gets shown on the screen. And it's I think it's really hard to have a conversation about this movie and not talk about that. I think we sort of were alluding to it earlier when we were talking about how it's, you know, it's not a feel good movie. It's a movie about you know, with, with a bunch of characters who aren't very good people. And I think that goes a step further and say, this is not only just a movie about characters who aren't very good people, it's a movie about characters who might not be very good mothers. Um, specifically Lita, who I think is pretty clear. She's not, she was not a very good unnatural mother. mother right? That's how she describes herself. Yeah. I'm an unnatural mother. Yeah. That's how she describes herself at the end of the movie. And there's just something about it that the Olivia Coleman performance makes you really feel this like life lived of bad mothering experiences. Like there's just something about the character that she feels like she's holding so much inside of her 
from that. And carrying I think that, the weight of all that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Jesse Buckley, it's such an interesting contrast because if you just look at them next to each other, right, you wouldn't expect Jesse Buckley to be a younger version of Olivia Coleman, right? But I, I think it actually it's it's played quite well in in the movie because you have this this completely different Lita who has not yet made all these decisions, who has not yet lived all these experiences. You see her live through those experiences, but at the beginning you haven't yet seen her live through those. And it's believable that she was a completely different person 20 years before. And the cost, you know, the weight, however you want to phrase it, of what happened in those flashbacks and the decisions decisions she ultimately made leads to her becoming, you know, Olivia Coleman. And I just found that to be something that I on, you know, when you first heard that Jesse Buckley was playing a young original Olivia Coleman, you're like, well, that's awesome because they're incredible actresses. But like, does that really work? I think is an is a normal reaction. And I don't know, to me, it really felt like it did. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying, maybe physically speaking, but I feel like acting wise, they do share a lot. Like, I don't know, they both just yeah. have this like aura where that just pulls you in when they're on screen. Um, sure. Yeah. That I think few, few actresses have. And so I think in that respect, it was a good match. But yeah, like on paper, maybe it's not necessarily, you know, uh, like you said, yeah. a one one v one comparison um yeah and it's, it's it was like, so oh, funny yeah, to, she's the mirror image yeah. of her it was so funny to hear maggie gyllenhaal talk about casting jesse buckley in this movie because she'd seen like an early screening of wild rose or something like that which is a movie about um you know another parent who's very questionable in her ability to be a mother um and you can't help but wonder it's like i mean obviously jesse buckley is is amazing in that role so that's reason enough to cast her but then like she's also played this this mother who's going through a troubling time in her life, trying to figure yeah. out what's important to her in that film as well. Obviously very different themes being explored in, in Wild Rose than to the lost daughter. I think um, it, her being a, a bad mother in quotation marks is more like window dressing for that film, as opposed to like narrative drive. The whole Whereas point. This is, yeah. Yeah. The, this movie is the whole point. She's a bad mother. Um, but yeah, I just found that really interesting to hear Maggie Gyllenhaal talk about that. Um, and what drove her to cast. Jesse Buckley in the role. Um, I don't know. I feel like I've rambled on about a bunch of different themes here, Scott. So why don't we just talk more explicitly about Olivia Coleman? I mean, we've talked. I mean, it seems like we've said a bunch already. I don't know if you have more to add about how um, peerless this yeah. performance seems to be. I'll just add a couple of scenes for me are one is when she's in the market with Dakota Johnson and has that moment where she kind of opens up right and reveals, hey, you know, this was my experience with my kids or whatever i left them or whatever and dakota johnson is like and how did that feel and she just like has this moment where she just like breaks um yeah. one of the only times we see her like break like that it really in the movie um the theater scene is another example that you talk about but um and she starts crying and you're like kind of waiting for her to be like it was you know terrible or it broke my heart or it was whatever. amazing she goes, yeah she goes, it felt amazing. Like, that's literally what she says. Yeah. Um, she felt like it's I like, was trying to explode and I finally exploded. Exactly. It's, the way it's a perfect way it. to play it because, again, like you see her face, like her face says one thing, but her, what she's actually saying, like that I felt amazing is totally different from what's on her face. So it really gets at, I, again, I feel like that guilt that is kind of like um, festering inside her about what she did um with her family e even though it felt right right like she doesn't 
necessarily, I mean, again, does she have regrets about it? Uh, who knows? Uh, that I think that's, again, part of the tension of her character and the tension of this moment. But even though it felt amazing, even though, you know, you get the sense that maybe if she were to go back, she would do it again. It doesn't mean that she doesn't feel guilty about it to some extent. Um, and that is why um, we have this moment again of sort of contrasting emotions, which I thought was really effective. Um, the other thing and is... And it's so interesting. Sorry, just quickly before you, you talk oh, about that. Yeah. It's so interesting to see then what she says when she's asked, well, why did you go back then? And she said, because I'm their mother and I miss them and I'm selfish. And, you know, knowing that like the damage that she'd done, but she went back anyway because it's what she wanted to do. And I just thought yeah. that kind of is an interesting bow on the end of that. But keep going. Yeah. And the other like the other thing where I think the the past and the present link up well is like there's these sort of like freeing moments where Olivia Coleman or Lita, the character of Lita, is like all of a sudden freed for a brief moment of time from you know the baggage of um having to be a mother and having to meet society standards of one another and you know in the in the jesse buckley parts um i think you know the first time we see her like leave town right and she goes to the hotel to when she's going to be giving her speech um and she meets peter mm -hmm. sarsgaard for the first time she's like in the hotel she gets on the phone to like order the wine and then she's like oh is there champagne she's like i'm celebrating and you're like, well, what is she celebrating, right? Is she celebrating that she's about to give this speech or is she celebrating that she's like not with her kids, like that she is having yeah. this for, and there, yeah, there's just like both, a, right? Yeah. yeah, I think, uh, I definitely think it is, but um, there's like a, a optimism, I guess, to the way that Jesse Buckley plays the scene that you don't really see from the character much in other parts of the, the movie. And, but then it's like compared with, in the present times with Olivia Coleman, like I think a, a comparison would be like when she's dancing, right? When she um, is there with Ed Harris and um, okay. they're, you know, just kind of dancing to living on a prayer and she's singing and it's like, um, you know, again, like I said, this freeing experience for her of like all of a sudden for this brief moment of time, being able to put all of this behind her and remember what it was like to be what you know for this time when she was young and unencumbered um you know flashback to that for for a brief moment of time um and you know that's not necessarily a new thing like i think the motif of like dancing being this freeing experience for a person is something that we've definitely seen in movies before but um i i still think it's effective again when you the way that the movie is structured when you compare it with um what you know the similar moments that we see from jesse buckley in the past so i, I think those are two subtler aspects of her performance that i thought um of both performances really but especially olivia coleman's performance that i thought um were really effective and you know driving home the themes of the movie yeah yeah, I don't know if I have too much more to add because I do think this is one of the best performances, if not the best performance of the year for me. <clears throat> That's something I still need to reflect on a little bit, but it's just such a powerful performance. And I, and again, it's it, it's it's not just her performance too. It it is the character, sort of originated by Alana Ferrante, translated to the screen by Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think it's a perfect melting pot of you know writing and acting that feels like it just captures this like pure essence of of something to really appreciate that's different and um, powerful. 
But Scott, the younger version of that, you already started to mention her briefly in terms of Jesse Buckley. We talked about how we've really enjoyed her in the past and their act and her acting style may or sentiments might be similar to that of Olivia Coleman. What did you think about that more, more explicitly? Are there any scenes that stuck out to you of hers in this film? Yeah, I don't know. I think I've kind of highlighted the main ones. I, I really like the scene as well too, when she's talking on the phone to her kids when she's in Peter Sarsgaard's um, bedroom yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. she's like, you know, all sort of faking it like, Oh yes, I love you. I miss you or whatever. And they keep persisting, I guess, with saying it. And then eventually she's just like, I love you too. Like all of the sort of fake emotion from her voice has gone out. And then, you know, she hangs up the phone. She's like, I hate talking to my kids on the phone. Um, and then she she's like, they that. hate it. They hate it too. Um, and again, it's one of those moments where like you wonder, do they really hate it? Or is that just her again projecting, trying to like justify her own own actions of like, well, it's not just me, you know, they hate it too. Like, um, it's just the yeah. experience. It's not that I hate being a mother, which obviously it is that is what it is. I mean, that is the truth of the situation. So I think uh, you know, again, a nice nuanced moment there from her. Um, but on the whole, I mean, I just think she's one of the four or five best actresses of like her age group um that do you, do you is, put her in with right like Saoirse Ronan Florence Pugh I mean she is older she's about five to ten years older than them where like what what's the group that you bracket her with out of curiosity yeah I don't know that's a good that's a good question um probably somebody more like Dakota Johnson for example is probably yeah. more like her contemporary um I guess that's I do definitely. kind of put her in that camp because like you know like a Florence Pugh like an Anya Taylor-Joy somebody like that they all kind of Rose up came around time, at the same right? time. Yeah. 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 Um, maybe, maybe you're right, but I, I don't know. I guess I tend to think of, I think she's still younger than 35. Um, I, I, I kind of tend to think of actresses like in that 21 to 35 range as being sort of the same group. So I guess I would put her in there for now. You're, you're, you're subscribing to the 35 under 35 category of the big picture podcast. Something like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think, that is, you know, obviously they do that, but I think that is a helpful like, yeah, landmark maybe as far as trying to. Group She's thirty two. things. She okay, just yeah. turned. So she just turned thirty two like a few days ago. So I definitely think she's. I would still put her in that camp with those actresses who are younger, but again, who are just sort of hitting their peak of their career at this point. Oh wow, Dakota Johnson is like basically. She's also thirty two, and they're only like a month apart. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I would have said Dakota Johnson was probably about that age too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think she's great. I I have been a big fan of hers, you know, since while since seeing her in Wild Rose, like yourself. I don't know if I'm I've been as big a fan. I wasn't hugely um, you know, on board with her big project of last year. I did really yeah. like her in her small role in Chernobyl, which I think is one that you haven't seen. Um, that's a mini the HBO BBC miniseries from a few years back. Um, she was really good as a sort of the wife of of one of the Chernobyl workers that you know got trapped inside the the nuclear facility. But I mean, yeah, she's she's awesome. This you know this was when I first saw this movie, I was like, is this? Hopefully, this is the movie that like more people just like lay eyes on her, right? I mean, no one no one watched. I'm thinking of ending things um, in terms of like a wide audience, um, yeah. <clears throat> and no one watched Wild Rose either. The sad truth of it, and that was a great movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know if this is going to be it either. Its best chance is if it 
gets a lot of, you know, if Netflix ends up putting up a big force behind it, it did get some, it has gotten some early buzz, right, for some of the, in, like the indie movie awards type deals. And I think it got some recognition from some of the critic circles. I just, I, I just don't feel like it's getting there, you know, in the awards conversation. And that would be the only way I think that people really lay eyes on this movie at this point. I mean, we're only four days in or whatever to this movie being out or three days into this movie being out on Netflix. It's still very early, but yeah, I'm not really seeing it. I'd be curious actually, while I do this right now, I'm going to go look at Netflix's top 10 list right now to see where this ranks on its top 10 list. Um, yeah, Jesse Buckley. Great. Dakota Johnson is sort of the third, you know, third point on this triangle of female performances in the movie. Again, it, she has this like, I wouldn't call it horrible, but she has this like unenviable task of like, like Jesse Buckley tr trying to act like Lita. Cause so again, this movie is such from the perspective of Lita that, that I think there is this element of projection that's going on, but like n also having to inject noticeable differences into the performance. And I think she does a really great job with that. She, they do something really interesting with her character where a lot of the first few shots or like the first few scenes you get with her they're shot from like really far away it is this really you know voyeuristic type look into like nina's life from lita's perspective on the beach and you don't actually hear her speak a line for probably you know she's been on the screen for five or ten minutes before you actually see her speaking and i just find that to be such an interesting choice and something that isn't doesn't seem like it'd be super easy to sort of play out on the screen if you know that's the intention of the narrative if you know if you're if you're dakota johnson playing this character scott what did you think of her role from there did, did you feel like she mastered that sort of balance between you know what olivia coleman is doing and then being her own character or was it too difficult for her to navigate yeah i think especially in her final moments she she differentiates herself uh, because like you know, when the reveal finally happened, we're, we're talking spoilers, obviously, at this point. When the reveal yeah. finally happens, um, you know, about the doll, when Olivia Coleman reveals that she's had the doll, Dakota Johnson snaps. I mean, there is no moment of, like, empathy or forgiveness or understanding or anything for um, Lita and obviously stabs her with a hat pin. Um, and, uh, yeah, I thought that was just an effective moment because it's like, again, it makes you wonder is this more the real Nina that we finally are seeing here at the end? Um, as opposed to, you know, this projection that we've been seeing for most of the movie that through Olivia Coleman's eyes is the real Nina, someone more, I don't know, someone darker, like who, who I mean, again, like this whole thing is going on with her husband and everything like, and um, you kind of are seeing her as a victim up until that point. Um, but who knows, maybe is she as, you know, sort of sinister and shady as her husband and maybe the rest of her family kind of seems to be. Um, this final moment might suggest that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think. I don't know if I have too much more to say about her performance, um, mainly just the character, I think, is obviously a very essential one to the movie. But, you know, I think she definitely holds her own with, you know. Olivia Coleman in some of some of these scenes. Uh, so that's a credit to how much I think she has progressed as an actress over the last two or three years. 
Yeah. And one of the things that I was just thinking about as I sort of talk about these three, you know, different that one of two of them are playing the same character, but these three different characters, right? This older, younger versions of Lita. And this is that I find that they're they're all sort of like, you know, physically shot differently, right? Like, I feel like you get your much more like standard, you know, profiles of Olivia Coleman. And again, I think you get a lot of these like far away shots early on of Dakota Johnson. But one thing that I meant to bring up when we're talking about Jesse Buckley is like, it just feels like every single flashback from a cinematography perspective is so much more claustrophobic, like right up in on Jesse Buckley's face. And you see like every little movement amplifying the performance maybe. And I wonder if you think there's any, anything that relates at all to some of these characters that, that you're talking about. Cause it's something that I didn't notice. I think I sort of noticed in the back of my mind the first time I watched it, but something that stuck out to me a lot more in the second is that like, especially in those flashbacks, the cinematography is, is different. And I think that is sort of to differentiate again, timelines and whatnot, but some part of it also feels like it's just trying to do something different um, with the characters as well, whether that's because it's a memory and it's, you know, very overwhelming to the older version of Lita as she remembers these things, or if it's something particular about the performance that Jesse Buckley is giving, I don't know, but do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, when I see a lot of close-ups, the thing I immediately always think of is like that it's confrontational. And I think maybe mm. that, you know, when you're talking about Jesse Buckley, like when she's the young mother, right? This is the time when she is most being confronted with the, you know, weight of her actions um, because she is supposed to be the caregiver for her children. Like this is the time when she's like most responsible for her children, I guess, because they're so young. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess in that regard, it kind of makes sense that the movie would be a little more in her face because it's trying to convey again the weight of society's expectations for her as a mother and um you know wants to put that pressure on her like you know make, make us feel the pressure that she feels that she has been put under um yeah. as opposed to you know again in the contemporary she's much older she's you know made her bed and she's lying in it as far as you know what she's done with her her children doesn't seem like she has a horrible relationship with them, um, but we don't really know. Um, there's We really only get a taste of that potentially at the very end. Um, but um, but yeah, so it's, it's not quite as confrontational because the expectations aren't necessarily there anymore. She's not, I mean, she's estranged from her children now. That's the only thing I would say, I guess. No, I'm, I don't, I wasn't really, proffering the question with an answer in mind. It's just something that stuck out to me. But I don't know if I do you have any anything more to add or anything you want to add about some of the other peripheral characters. There's Oliver Jackson Cohen, who plays Nina's husband, Tony. There's, you know, there is Doug Mara Domenchich. There's Paul Mescal, Peter Sarsgaard, Ed Harris. Anyone else you want to mention? Jack Farthing um, as her. I think they're husband. all I mean, I think they're all, all solid. I think Ed Harris is good. I, I liked you know, the scene that you mentioned with him sort of reflecting on his own failures, maybe as a parent. Um, I think he was, you know, effective there. Paul Mescal, not too dissimilar from the role that we saw him playing on Normal People to your earlier point. But um, he, ha you know, he gets a, his scene with um, Olivia Coleman at dinner, which I think is, you know, a good scene as well. Um, so I think everybody gets their their little moments, but it's really, you know, about 
these lead three actresses, but really even more so these lead two with Coleman and Buckley. All right, so let's talk about the the very, very ending. I think this is the last thing we can wrap up on. I think we had a spirited discussion back when you first saw the movie, because I'd already seen it, about what actually happens at the end of this movie. But the movie ends where it begins, because it turns out the first scene of the movie is actually also the very, you know, basically the setup for the very end of the movie, where, you know, she has been stabbed with this hairpin in this confrontation with Nina at the end of the movie. And then she leaves, right? She's leaving her vacation. She's driving back and she's sort of, I, I, I guess the way I read it is that she's sort of overwhelmed by the pain or whatever of, of that stabbing wound and drives off the road, stumbles onto the beach, falls over, but then wakes up and calls her children, Bianca and Martha, who have been, I guess this is where I think the trickiness comes in, right? Where it seems like she, she has tried to call at least Martha earlier on in the movie. Um, but as, and there's been a ton of tension around what has happened to Bianca, I think, throughout the film. In fact, the first time I watched this, I thought, especially that first sort of flashback scene where you see just Jesse Buckley walking up and down the beach yelling for Bianca, is this like signaling she that Bianca is dead or, or something? Yeah, yeah or, or, is, dead, or is yeah. right the lost daughter or whatever, right? Like, is has gone missing. Um, but uh, on the face of things, everyone's alive at the end. Uh, Olivia Coleman's Lita says as much. She's she's alive. I, you know, I'm alive. Um, and both of her daughters are there on the phone. Scott, I am of the mindset that things are not as they seem at the end of the movie um, for reasons that you know maybe I can get into. But how are you feeling after a second watch? Because I know on a first viewing, you weren't that you didn't necessarily agree with my with my perspective. I don't. I just don't know that I was thinking about it as deeply the first time. Um, maybe yeah. uh, I. I did see something about like that the book. Maybe it is more explicitly that she is dead at the end. Um, like well, it's this... so. It's so funny. So I. I wanted. I was going to wait to bring this up, but since you're bringing it up already, so yeah, looked into this. The book is sort of almost the opposite, actually, of what happens. She wakes up in the hospital, and. Her daughters, she either calls her daughters or her daughters call her and they ask her if she's alive. And she says, no, I'm dead. Yeah. So it's like actually the right. opposite of what happens here where she wakes up on the beach and her daughters, her daughters on the phone ask her, I mean, pretty audibly, we thought you were dead. And she's like, no, I'm alive. So I don't know how to read that. Is she alive in the book dead here? Is she dead in both? Like, I don't know. Um, it's 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 pretty ambiguous to me, but I'm, I'm definitely leaning one direction. Well, yeah, it, I think it's even more interesting because like in the movie it's not it's not that's not quite the progression it's like they're like we thought you were dead and she's like dead and her daughter goes are you all right and she's like no i'm alive um mm -hmm. and i think there's something to the fact that she answers the question of are you all right by saying no i'm alive um almost like i mean there's obviously a real blurring of the lines between being alive and being dead to her like almost like they're not too far removed from her uh, sure. too far removed from each other at this point yeah. for her um i think i'm probably in your camp because of the orange thing like because i think the, the orange, orange thing is just yeah. too random like to make you know have any other um you know explanation and also i wonder too because you know she's talking with her daughters you know they're having a pretty civil conversation like it seems like they still get along on some level is that the reality is that reality or is this like some sort of you know, idealized afterlife 
um, where she has gotten the second chance, right? Because because that's what happens, right? She her daughter asks her to peel the orange like a snake in the old in the past time. The last flash. And that yeah. that is the moment when she leaves. Like that is when she walks out. She doesn't do it. She walks out. So it's almost like here's the orange. Here's your daughter's. This is your second chance. But we know that like life probably isn't going to give her the second chance at this point. So it's almost like like the only conclusion seems to be that she has died and this is her, you know, again, some sort of afterlife or, you know, experience that she is projecting where she has been given a second chance in her death to, you know, be the mother that maybe she should have been. But also, again, do we feel like she should like she should have been like again it's it's very complicated because she doesn't ha- necessarily have a lot of regrets about it it it's perched on a very thin line i guess is what i'm saying like it's it's hard to to she know has she, she has a lot of complicated emotions um yeah because again like um you know the whole empathy thing that i think is important like is the movie has made us feel some empathy for her in a way of like you know should our expectations for mothers be as high as they are, right? Um, certainly, I think uh, that Lita crosses the line, no matter what, where you're put, putting the line at, you know, several points in her past and present. But um, I, I think that question is still there, lingering under the surface of, um, yes, she was probably a bad mother, but also is society and whatnot expecting her to do too much as a mother expecting her to suppress too much of her own freedom and emotions in order to you know serve this maternal role um and is is in are any of her feelings justified in some way yeah i think it asks it asks a lot of hard questions with that well, with a mixed answer, I'd say. And I'm, I was going to say it didn't have an answer, but I think it does have an answer. But that answer is complicated. And I, yeah, I, I firmly, after the second viewing, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident she is dead at the end of this. I actually think the comparison to how what happens in the book actually makes me even more confident that this is going a different direction. The orange, for sure, I think is the red herring. I mean, there's, there's like a bunch of fruit metaphors. I feel like going on in the, the movie, I mean, very early on, she has that fruit bowl in the house that, you know, it looks pristine. It looks like it's fresh. Um, and then you lift it up and it's rotten on the inside. And I think that's obviously just like a huge metaphor, um, kind of on the nose almost for what's going on, you know, with these people in their lives is you sort of peel back all the layers of, of fruit and whatnot. And you peel the skin and you lift it up, you lift up the orange from what you see on the surface and see that it's, um, you know, that it is decaying and that it is rotten. And then I think that fruit is trying to be continue, you know, the, the orange at the end of the movie is trying to, con- yes, it, it is this ostensible, ostensible connection to the past and to peeling the orange and whatnot. But I think it's also a connection to the metaphors that have been sort of littered throughout the movie of this, this notion of fruit and the fact that this is a pristine orange. This is a, this is a non rotten orange from what we can tell. It gives you a moment of she's, she has been cleansed. But I think the truth is the only cleansing that this character can go through is, is through death. I think that yeah. is that that is in my mind the only way she can she can really find that level. I mean, redemption isn't even the right word, right? But like that sort of release from you know the decisions that she'd made in the past. Because I just think this is a, this is a movie that's not that isn't about forgiving people for 
mistakes they've made. It's about acknowledging the mistakes that were made and, and moving past it, but not necessarily forgiving. Um, and, I, and I think that is that's the part that I wrestle with. That this film isn't interested in giving people second chances, not in the sense that the ending would would necessarily relate in my mind. Yeah, I think I think I agree with all that. But anyway, sorry, Olivia Coleman dead. Um, Bianca maybe alive, unclear. Um, I just think that it's it, it also the way that she's talking with them on the phone. I mean, forget the whole thing about talking about how she is alive or whatever. Um, you know, that her children are talking to her as if she never calls them. And to me, that just makes me feel like she's sort of fusing a bunch of things together where the last flashback we saw was her leaving. And we know she left for three years and didn't see her kids for three years. In my mind, she's like calling them for the first time after three years. And she's projecting that conversation into like this sort of, you know, her life flashing before her eyes, right before she dies or whatever. Um, and having this conversation again, as she, you know, wakes up on the beach, it, all these pieces put together, makes me feel like she's dead, but I'm sure there's a equally compelling argument. Maybe that she's alive that I'm just not seeing. I don't know. Cinema baby, ambiguous endings. I'm all for. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's the sign of a great movie that we have that much to talk about i think yeah all right favorite scene or moment from the lost daughter i think it's got to be that market scene for me between olivia coleman and dakota johnson just because so much comes bubbling to the surface there like of yeah um you, you know that's that's the moment where you know we've been seeing her sort of disillusion with meant with motherhood over the course of the movie uh but it's kind of just been us having to put that together from what we've been seeing. But this is the moment where finally she just like sort of breaks and it comes out of her. Like, no, it felt amazing when I was away from my kids. And again, like I said, that juxtaposition of the sort of sadness that is on her face when she says that. But again, the emotion of no, it actually felt really good to be doing this. Um, I think sums, um, sums it up really well how complex and interesting this movie is. Yeah, if, if that weren't the scene for me, uh, then it would be the theater scene. Again, another sort of show of unbridled rage, I think, from Olivia Coleman's character, you know, understanding the emotions in the present that she's really capable of that you also see in flashbacks. Uh, you know, I talked about the scene already, but the way that she sort of just loses it, both in terms of, you know, screaming at these kids, just pretty vile things that she screams at them. Um Although we've all been there, this year has been terrible. A, a te some, some, in some respects, a terrible uh, movie-going experience year. And I've definitely wanted to yell. You know, I'll, I'll chop your dicks off and feed them to you like peanuts to other people in the crowd <laughs> this year or whatnot. But I did uh, last night watching Red Rock. <laughs> yeah, uh, she said that, and I just think there's there's that layer of the performance in that scene, and there's the layer of the performance where after she has exploded, there is just all the emotion and rage on her face bubbling over and you know i called it capital a acting earlier on but i that almost i think derides it a little bit say calling it something that maybe is overacted i don't think it's overacted at all i think it's perfectly acted and all the emotion and rage on her face just feels perfect there's nothing wrong with capital a acting if it is employed sparingly if it is strategically employed in the movie which is yeah. what it is here another example yeah. that i always talk about is spotlight right where yeah. everyone always is like oh bark ruffalo the they knew scene or whatever is the most example is the biggest example of like over a capital a acting 
No, like that is the only scene like that in the entire movie. And it's placed at a very strategic point in spotlight to, you know, where it is actually believable and um, has maximum impact. Um, whereas it's yeah. not, you know, just going on in every single scene. So I, not to go too far down that road, but route, but I think that's what the lost daughter is doing as well. No, agreed. I right, Scott, out of 10. What are you giving lost daughter? 9.0 really strong movie. Um, yes. Definitely, if, if I'm making a best movies of the year list, it's very high on the list. If, you know, if we're talking about next week, our favorites list, it might be a little lower just because, you know, I've watched it twice now. Is this going to be something that I perpetually rewatch over the years? Probably not. Um, I, I still think it's, you know, a, a brilliant film that people need to give a chance to. Um, but it may not be as high on the list as you would expect based on that score. But I think from a as objective a standpoint as possible, it's a it's a nine point oh. It's a really strong strong movie. Yeah, for me, the, you know, this is the kind of movie where I watch the second time and I'm like, you know, maybe this isn't the most gratifying film to watch, but if nothing else, that musical cue in the movie, man, it gets me. It gets me every time. Yeah, it's a marvelous kick. Uh, whenever it. it sort of comes through in the film. And, you know, I was talking to someone months ago about this movie or seeing some reviews online. I can't remember what it was. And they were talking about how like the score is like bad and it, it feels like distracting to the movie. I'm like, I don't know, man, I love this score. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, maybe it doesn't work for some people. Nice and bluesy. I, absolutely. Yeah, no, it definitely it definitely fits the tone of the film for me. You know, it's sort of like european vacation jazzy bluesy kind of vibe and it, it just it just really works for me anyway all that's to say i'm giving this film a 9.3 i like this film even more on a second watch than i did the first time is it a film i'm going to revisit a bunch no maybe not i don't know maybe i don't know i don't know but i've watched it twice and i enjoyed it maybe i'd watch it more i'm not sure but it's a good one it's a good one for me definitely that should do it for our discussion of Lost Daughter. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about a few, a few pieces of news that broke over the holidays. But until then, we'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It Scott. As expected, not that much news came out over the holidays, but there were some awards-related news items that we did want to mention that we didn't have the chance to mention last week on our double feature episode. So, Scott, they're going to both be awards themed. We'll start with mine first, and then we'll go to you. Mine's really quick. Sure. It may not be surprising to learn that the coronavirus, specifically the Omicron variant, has thrown a spanner in the works of award shows, especially the Critics' Choice Awards, which was angling to sort of take over the spot of the Golden Globes and have their ceremony, I think, as of recording a week from now. I think as of time of release, probably a few days from now. But they have already pushed that ceremony back. I think, I don't even know if it has a confirmed new date yet. I think it might have just been pushed back indefinitely. You know, sometime in the next few weeks, maybe they will 
they will slap a new date on that thing. But here we are again, Scott. It's award season and award shows are getting delayed. Last year, the Oscars weren't until, what was it, mid-April? When was it? It was really late. Mid to late April, I think, was when. Yeah, yeah somewhere the in there. It might have been late yeah. April. Yeah. Yeah, the Oscars last year. This year, it's going to, they, they already planned it to be later than usual. You know, maybe because of something like the Winter Olympics and the Super Bowl and and a bunch of other stuff that's happening around the time that they would normally be taking the spotlight. But they're the end of March already. Does this concern you at all, Scott? Is it? It's not surprising after Omicron really started to take over earlier on in December that something like this would happen. And it feels like the right thing to do if they're trying to put on a full award show. But what what do you think? Do you have any thoughts about this? No, I, I mean, I guess I don't. I mean, I, ha I do have a lot of thoughts, but probably not like, you know, <laughs> worth expressing yeah. here on the podcast because yeah, it all, you know, it also ties into how I feel about like sports games and everything getting canceled due to Omicron. And I, I feel like at a certain point, right, we've got the vaccines. We have the booster now, right? Omicron yeah. is less serious. People who are getting it are not really dying, especially if they are vaccinated. Um, I, I feel like at some point we have to say this thing is always going to be there, right? We're never going to have a 0% chance of contracting it when we go outside. That's just, this is the new normal, unfortunately. Um, at some point we need to move on with our lives or we're all going to go crazy, right? Um, if you've done what you should do and gotten your vaccines, which we have and gotten our boosters, um, then at some point, I think you just have to say, We've done what we can. We've, you know, we've been smart about it. We've been responsible about it. Um, you know, wear a mask. Sure, that's. I mean, that's a, another good way to continue to to fight the spread of this thing. But we've gotten ourselves to a good point, I think, as a, as a society, um, to where we can say, look, let's let's go back. We have to be able to go back and do things. Otherwise, what's the point of getting these vaccines, right? What's what's the point of going and, and getting these shots? Because we we went to do this, or at least, you know, I did, primarily motivated by, of course, protecting myself and others from the virus, but tied in with that is so that I can do the things that I enjoy doing again. And, you know, so I think tying that in with the, the awards, it's like, yeah, I get it, but um, I hope this doesn't mark a, you know, a trend of pushing some other award shows back, like pushing the Oscars back again. Uh, I mean, obviously it's already going to be later this year still, um, and at the end of March than it, than it normally would be. Um, I hope, you know, that other award shows won't look at this and say, oh, well, now that the critic choice has delayed or whatever, you know, are do we look like we are just, you know, condoning the spread of the virus or whatever, because we're still having our show? Um, I think we just need to suck it up at this point. I, maybe that's too strong of a take, but that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, for me, I think it makes sense sort of in the in the early stage here to not have this mass gathering, because especially at the time where they have to make a decision. It is still early on in the spread of Omicron. Yes, it's less severe, but the transmissibility of it is very high. So I think on some level, I do understand. I think there's also some element that there's probably some amount of Hollywood that doesn't talk about this, but they're not vaccinated, right? Like it would not shock me in the slightest that a, that a good chunk of that crowd isn't, isn't vaccinated. And so they're a little bit more reticent to do things like that. 
that aside, I do think at some point, especially when you get to, unless there's some new variant that comes up between now and then, which of course is possible. God, God help us if the Oscar gets pushed back. Scott, I don't know if I can still be talking about 2021 movies um, in late April of this year. I mean, I, I've really enjoyed yeah. 2021. The movies have frankly been great. I'd put my top 20 from this year up against the top 20 from most other years, but I don't want to be talking about, I don't know, what other crap nominations Don't Look Up is going to get in mid-April. Yeah, uh, I mean, gosh, God help us if that is still in the conversation. I mean, it's. I feel like it's going to be, be, unfortunately. But yeah, um, yeah, as many good movies as there there were this year, we got to move on at some point. Yeah, yeah. All right, Scott, what's your opinion? Is you want to talk about the Oscar shortlists? Yes. Um, so every year, the Academy Awards um, release their uh, shortlists. You know, again, a couple of months before the awards show for some of the the not ma- not really major categories, but some of the, you know, mid categories, I guess, P- particularly uh, documentary feature, international feature, um, best makeup and hairstyling, original score, original song. Uh, basically, these short lists usually have like 15 to 20 movies, songs, scores, whatever it may be. Um, but from those short lists, you know, we will get the five nominees um, in these respective categories. So just kind of instructive to look at those and see sort of any potential omissions that, you know, might end some movies, Oscar campaigns, Scott documentary feature. I think most of the, the, you know, movies I would have expected to see on here are on here. Um, Summer of soul, you know, one of my favorites of the year, um, I think is, is going to be a strong candidate at the Oscars. Um, a couple other music docs in there with uh, Billie Eilish, the world's a little blurry and uh, the velvet underground, Todd Haynes's documentary. Um, and, so, you know, th- those could be a factor. It'll be interesting to see, like, how that shakes out, right? Can more than one music doc get in there? If it's only one, I think it's going to be Summer of Soul, just because I think it has the most significance. It's probably the most significant one of these three documentaries, um, if I had to to say. The Rescue is in there, right, from the, the directors of Free Solo, which was an Academy Award winner a couple of years ago. Um, the first wave is one of Netflix's big uh, is kind of Netflix's big documentary this year about COVID um, in New York specifically. Procession, yeah, Procession is one I've been hearing a lot about um, that has to do with the Catholic Church um, sex scandals and is apparently a a very intense watch. But I've you know I've heard good things about it, so that might be one that gets itself in there. Um, but then I think, Scott, I, th- I still think the favorite in this category is Flea, um, which is, you know, the documentary about a uh, Middle Eastern immigrant um, and his experience. Um, I've already forgotten what country it is. Was it Iran or? Syria, probably. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought it was a really strong film. Um, I think it's going to be a factor in documentary and international feature and animated right we talked about all of these things because it's a rotoscope animated film um and so i think you know it, it it will be interesting to see if it can claim any of those i think i guess if i had to pick one that i think it's going to win probably documentary i think it probably ha- is the front runner at this point um scott any thoughts on the the documentaries before i hit the international features yeah, I can't say that I've seen. I mean, I saw Flea, wow, way back at Sundance in January. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was good, not great. It's certainly a powerful tale about this person, you know, fleeing 
from its life. It's Afghanistan. Um, yeah, he's from Af- Af- this this character. Okay, okay. I think his name is given as a- Amin or Amin, but that's not his yeah. real name. Um, yeah, fleeing from Afghanistan uh, after being displaced by these you know civil war type conflicts, conflicts with other countries as well, and his experience being a refugee traveling through Russia and then I think trying to get to Denmark, I think is where he ultimately is trying to get to or something like that, which makes sense because I think this film is Danish. Um, but yeah, I just, it, it's, it's a powerful tale for sure. I was a much bigger fan of the rescue, which is the, which is a, it's, I think it's on Disney plus already actually, but it's a national geographic. It is. Yeah. That's where documentary. I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have a lot still to do in the documentary category, which isn't surprising. I mean, I saw a bunch of documentaries at Sundance, but half of them haven't been released, and the other half would never really get coverage at the Oscars, to be honest. Um, yeah. But yeah, man, I, it's interesting. I'll be more, I think I'll be more interested when the final nominees get ironed out, and that's usually when I then go and watch all the documentaries that got nominated that I missed. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'd like to do that too if I can. You know, there's the two, I guess, for me, Procession, which I talked about, and then um the velvet underground are definitely two that mm. i would like to to check yeah. out um, oh yeah i've also seen summer of soul too i guess I, i've seen that one yeah um which was good i liked that more almost usually. a year ago now but yeah yeah crazy that was like my first night at sundance i saw i think that was like the second or third movie the third movie maybe i saw at sundance yeah so i like 1 a.m on the first night well that's an experience um yeah, so Scott, moving on to international feature, um, I think the first thing that stuck out to us here was something that I guess we just hadn't realized, um, because of course the way this works is that each country just submits one film um, for consideration, and Spain actually did not submit Parallel Mothers, the Pedro Almodovar um, film, Pedro Almodovar being an Oscar winner um, in the international feature category before, um, and just sort of his movies are perpetually Oscar candidates. Um, but they did not submit that movie. They submitted something called The Good Boss, which I haven't really heard that much about um, and maybe won't even get be in the final five. But just yeah. an interesting. And also a movie that has been on so many people's top 10 lists. It's like crazy. This movie, this movie. Parallel Mothers. Yeah. 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 It wasn't selected. Yeah. I, I'd love to know what the thought process was there. But Scott, elsewhere, um, Flea uh, is nominated, like I said, from Denmark. Um, it, it does make the short list for international feature. Um, an interesting one I felt was Lamb, right? Uh, the yeah. Iceland nominee with the A24 film that they kind of pitched as a horror movie, but apparently wasn't really a horror movie. Uh, I didn't see it. It just seems like a strange movie to even be in this conversation. It probably won't make the final five, but, uh, you know, it, it was interesting to see that. Pop well, now that you there. said that, it will definitely make the final five. Yeah. Um, a hero, Scott, from Iran. This is uh, Asghar Farhadi's latest film. He, he's won a couple of Oscars. Um, so I, I think this one will definitely make it in the, the final five, especially because um, for, with Farhadi's last film, The Salesman, um, there was this whole controversy. I don't know if you remember, Scott, uh, because he couldn't come to the Oscars due to Trump's travel ban. Um, yeah. and so I, I wonder if they will try to, you know, rectify that by, um, you know, nominating his film, maybe even giving his film the, the Oscar, but he has won a couple of Oscars. Like I said, the salesman did end up winning and then, um, a separation. That, that, that also was wasn't like, his last film though. He's, he's done another film since then. Oh, okay. But I, maybe was that his last nominated film though, or Pro- probably, I mean, he did everybody knows okay. in 2018, but I don't really remember okay. whether that was nominated or not. 
I don't either. Um, but A Separation was kind of like his breakthrough movie, and that also won the Oscar for International Feature at the time. Um, the Hand of God, Scott, from Italy, that's Paolo Sorrentino's latest film. He is also Netflix, a previous, previous winner of the uh, International Feature Oscar for The Great Beauty. Um, Drive My Car, maybe the favorite right now from Japan. This is one of Ryosuke Hamaguchi's two films from this year. Um, you know, another movie that is popping up on so many best of the year lists and feels like it is almost getting to a point where it is sort of penetrating outside the just the film Twitter circles, right? Like, I feel like even yeah. casual film fans are maybe starting to become aware that this is a movie, right? That is getting a lot of good buzz and that they should have on their radar. Um, I can't I can't begin to to dream that this might pull a parasite and get you know forget winning but it just get nominated for best picture that's that's I just can't start thinking that way yet <laughs> and I don't think you should because I still think that no. that is not going to happen just based on yeah. the type of movie it is or what that I know it to be um compared to parasite um and then yeah. Scott the last sort of notable one here the, the worst person in the world uh, from Norway uh directed by Joachim Trier we've both seen this one now I think we're both pretty big fans of it another one that a lot of people are talking about showing up on a lot of lists i would expect it to be in there in the final five um i guess if i had to choose right now um i would say that flee a hero the hand of god drive my car and the worst person in the world would probably be the five that are going to get it but i just don't know um as much about some of these other movies so it's possible that something else sneaks in there um that just hasn't been on my radar but those are the five movies that are on my radar just based on what I've been hearing about them. And also again, who is involved. Um, so uh, again, like I don't know as much about the hand of God, but I know it's Paolo Sorrentino and he's won before. So um, it's a Netflix yeah, movie. It's, so in some ways it's the, it's the most easily accessible of the, of the movies yeah. um, to watch. I, I feel like you're probably right. Um, you haven't talked about hive here, which right. is, a Sundance, which debuted at Sundance and won a bunch of international feature awards. Doesn't seem like enough, that many people are talking about it. So I don't think that it will really be in the conversation. I think there's a reason why you skipped over it. I think that's fair. Um, but did want to call that out. I think if one was going to sneak in out of nowhere, it might be that one. Um, but I do think just from the discourse, if I dare say such a word on this podcast, I do think those are probably the five that would get in. Just because it doesn't really feel yeah. like there's another, there's another movie with any sort of momentum to to take a spot away from these five without parallel mothers on the board. Right. Um, uh, I think that's probably a good shout. Finally, Scott, best original score is one that I think is probably worth discussing here. Um, you know, a couple of omissions. Maybe I'm not super surprised to see Nine Days get snubbed, but um, you know, that was one that I was a big fan of. The Lost Daughter. Did, I don't think did anyone in the make... Academy's watched Nine Days, so that's fine. The, I mean that. Yeah, again, I, I'm not super surprised about it. The Lost Daughter did not make it in as well, um, yeah. which it is what it is. Um, I, I guess yeah. from these nominees, Scott, my favorite from this short list, my favorites would have to be um, the French Dispatch. Um, Alexander Desplat, um, you know, always does great work with Wes Anderson and won an Oscar for Wes's uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Dune may be the number one at this point. Man, it might be the odds on favorite. I haven't necessarily looked into the odds on this one yet, but it has been winning at a lot of, you know, of the critic circles and things like that that have gone on so far. Um, Parallel Mothers up there as well, though, winning actually quite a few awards for Alberto Iglesias. Yeah. 
the power of the dog and Spencer, I think, uh, you know, both Johnny Greenwood scores, I think I wouldn't be surprised to see both of them make it in there. Uh, for me, I, I preferred Spencer's score, I think, um, to the power of the dogs. Uh, but and again, I prefer I, the power I of the dog. So there you go. And I don't know what the again, I don't know what the discourse on these two are, if there's like one that is universally more preferred than the other. It seems like they're both getting a lot of high praise. So I could see them both. Um, making it in there um then just some like bewildering ones to me scott like uh king richard being the ricardos uh don't look up don't look up is composed by nicholas Bertel, who um you know is a kind of a known quantity in the um in the score world he got nominated for um if bill street could talk and i think for moonlight as well um but like being the ricardos um you know the last duel even i don't really remember much about the last duel score um don't look up Candyman was a random movie in there i i i think maybe i do recall at least it having a decent score um it had a good sound design at the end i don't know did it have a good score some of those some of these movies getting in over you know like i said some of the ones that i liked like nine days and the lost daughter and sure there's one or two others that i'm forgetting are i mean that's that's kind of disappointing uh, but all, probably they won't be factors in the end again if i had to choose right now i think probably dune the french dispatch uh parallel mothers the power of the dog and spencer would be the ones that i would um would point to but uh that's just you know based on what i've been seeing thus far Any no love for the harder they fall i mean that's another one that's kind of weird to be in there for me because like it's primarily a soundtrack movie. Like I've, I've barely, I've only vaguely remember the score from the movie. Like I, what I remember more is like the hip hop songs because like, you know, James Samuel is a hip hop musician. He's a friend of Jay-Z is like, that was kind of the driving. It was almost like a Django Unchained type. Again, when they did it, they did a black, black Western and they had all this sort of anachronistic hip hop music to go along with it. So I don't even, uh, that was kind of a strange one to see pop up in there for me, but yeah. But I think a lot of the movie, the music of the film is original, though, isn't it? But does that count as being a score? Like if it's doesn't doesn't it if it's original music? Maybe so. I, I that's a good question. I would have like to does look Randy into... doesn't Randy Newman's like Toy Story songs count as original scores though? Like I don't know. Isn't that part but Randy of the Newman score? actually does the score for the movie, like as well? Like he well, actually I... does the instrumental yeah. stuff as well. No, I, I know, but I think James Samuel does, or I forget who it is, like whoever composed the score, I think also composed like the score for like the, the original songs that like Jay-Z performs or whatever. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I'd have to look at what, sort of what the criteria are on that. But, um, yeah. you know, I mean, they have best original song. That's where I would think. And the, and and one of the songs from The Heart of They Fall is in the shortlist for that. Um, yeah, Guns so Go Bang, which that. is the original. That's the Jay-Z song, I think. Yeah. 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 Anyway. But yeah. There you have it. Um, I, I guess briefly to talk about original songs since we just talked with it there. I mean, my choice would be either No Time to Die or So May We Start from Annette. But like that is the only good part of Annette is the first five minutes when they sing So So May We Start. Um, but it's a great song by Sparks. It would be cool to see Sparks win an Oscar, you know, in the totality of their work this year when you think i mean because the the documentary is very good that edgar wright did and i really like them musically they were one of my top artists on spotify this year because of that documentary primarily um so it would be cool to see them win and i do think that's the best song in the net um but you know uh, no time to die is also a really strong bond theme i think from billy eilish 
the most of the other songs I don't even know. Like, um, you know, Down to Joy was the Van Morrison song that plays in the closing credits of, uh, of Belfast. Um, so that's one that could definitely make it in there, even though Van Morrison is a POS. Um, yeah, but again, most of the other songs I haven't, I don't know where I've heard, like, like again, the Ariana Grande song from uh, from Don't Look Up, I've heard is just awful. So it's kind of funny that it made it in there. But I'm glad, on the topic of awful, I'm glad that Aloe Black's song uh, at the end of The Rescue did not make it in there because, oof, that was rough. That was easily the roughest part of uh, The Rescue was Aloe Black's song over the closing credits. But yeah. yeah. I'm kind of surprised that we don't talk about Bruno isn't the song that that made it in from Encanto, which I feel like is the song that everyone's talking about from that movie. And I said it's Dos Origatos, but um, yeah, interesting. I, I think Encanto probably has a decent shot there. I mean, the mu- it's Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's, mm-hmm. I think, very exciting, a bit more poppy than some of the traditional fare might be that's in this category. I mean, that I think that's also true for Billie Eilish's No Time to Die. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if the Academy go full clown and and pick respect the song from respect or whatever from aretha franklin um wouldn't wouldn't be why surprised is there an origi- why is there an original song in that movie right like it's a freaking biopic of aretha franklin yeah you would think you wouldn't need it so it can get music. so it can win an oscar that's the answer yeah, yeah i think that actually is the answer and then i think i mean look i think guns go bang has a chance because i just don't know where else the academy is going to going to really honor the harder they fall and i think that movie has like a, a lot of love behind it um I feel like plenty of people have talked about it. So I think that yeah, maybe it might get I mean hip, a shout hip hop hip hop songs have one before. I mean, uh recently the Glory, the song that John Legend and Common did for Selma one, but you know, yeah. it's hard out here for a pimp one, lose yourself one. So I mean, I could see it. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I have to say. And that is that for this episode, episode 173 of Some Like It Scott. Any parting thoughts to leave us with on this? new year podcast episode just looking forward to next week scott i hope everyone will tune in for our best of the year episode i think it's going to be a lot of fun um we have a ton of great movies to talk about i'm you know just look finalizing my list and it's it's amazing to me the movies that didn't even make it in my top 20 so i agree um, i was thinking the same thing i was like man i feel like kind of a dick for not like for having some of these movies outside my top 20 but then i look at my top 20 i'm like well okay that's why yeah all bangers it do be like that sometimes. Where can people find you on Twitter and Letterboxd? I'm at Scarby Dent on both. At S. Shelton 2013 for me on both as well. Please follow our podcast on its Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. You can join, support us, and there's a bunch of different rewards. You can check them out. If you can support us, that's great. If not, that's okay too. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about The Lost Daughter today. We'll be back next week with a big one, as Scott's already alluded to, as I said earlier, our top 10 movies of 2021. We hope you'll join us then, but until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.